Romans 8, verses 14 through 28. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It's great to see you and great to be back together again. I uh, came across these words about 10 years ago um, by the great theologian J.I. Packer. He wrote, a certain type of ministry of the gospel is cruel. It doesn't mean to be, but it is. And I've shared these words before, but it's not an overstatement to say that the the chapter that these words came from when I read them 10 years ago had had a life-changing effect on me. And so what, what sort of ministry is Packer talking about that is cruel we said it's, it's the teaching that becoming a Christian makes your life easier. He said it's a, it's a cruel teaching that when you, when you come into the faith that, that everything gets lighter and easier, your, your sinning decreases, you find your truest self and your deepest calling, you're equipped to change the world and there's less overall suffering. He said this is a cruel teaching. He says, it's the lopsided impression which pictures the normal Christian life as trouble-free, and it leads sooner or later to bitter disillusionment. See, we all have this this sort of wish dream of life as it should be. It's happy, pain-free, trouble-free, we're wealthy, everything just goes exactly how it should. But this is not attached to reality at all, Right? And it's also not the vision of the good life that the scriptures give us. 
But then a, a well-meaning preacher comes along. He's infected by the same disease, and he's following his own wish dream. But he says, you can find everything you want in this life. It's Christianity and, and, and this church. If you'll just join this church, all your wildest dreams will come true, right? And then no wonder bitter disillusionment comes after that. Christ does change everything, but it's not that simple, right? Packer says, God does not make our circumstances notably easier, rather the reverse. Now, thankfully, the, the scriptures don't leave us alone when it comes to pain and suffering and, and hardship. We don't have to, to avoid or, or minimize the hardship of life. We've been doing this series on healing, and it's, it's a, it's a a hard series. It's, it's heavy inner work. I, I know it's hard. It's, it's hard for, for those of us that are teaching it. For some people, it's been an absolute joy and a delight because they, they've never been taught that God loves healing, that, that God was healing in the Old Testament, that he healed in the life of Jesus, that he was healing in the early church, that, that the Bible commands us to pray for healing. And so they're, they're finding healing and freedom that they've never known, and so they're loving it. And yet there's others among us that have, have incredibly struggled with this series. They've been praying for, for years or decades for God's grace to come breaking through in their lives, for some awful suffering to be lifted, and it has not come yet. And so I, I understand, and I, and I even personally feel the depth of how difficult it can be to think about and talk about suffering. I've even had people tell me that they're simply leaving and coming back when the series is over. But the thing is, I don't think the series is causing the, the pain and the hurt. I think it's only revealing what's, what's already there, what's under the surface. And we know how, how can you heal what you never reveal, that great line from Jay-Z that you know. <laughs> all, all the scripture writers and then all contemporary psychologists and counselors and every rapper married to Beyonce, they're all literally saying the same thing, that you don't go around your suffering. You, you, cannot, you cannot resolve the, the inner hurts of your heart by going over it or under it or around it or avoiding it or minimizing it in any way. We have to go straight to it. We have to go straight through it. We have to actually go where it hurts most. God rarely heals something without the person first giving him access to it. God rarely does a healing work in us unless we are giving him permission to do that inner work. And so the point of this series is to both raise faith around healing and to raise our trust in non-healing. In this passage we're looking at, Romans 8, it is like an all-timer, like 82% of all Reformed people say this is their favorite chapter, all right? It's made up on the spot. 64% have, don't even know what it's about, but they still, they're just like Romans 8, that's my chapter. And it is incredible. And so the three things I want to see today is, first of all, our, our deep groaning. What it is, our deep groaning. And then second, how God responds to our groaning. And then third, what sustains us in our groaning. So let's pray and we'll, we'll let God speak here. Um, Father, we do pray for that. We pray that you would speak among us. 
that your word as it's, as it's read and spoken would have a, an impact far beyond human words, that my words would not get in the way, but that you would speak to your children, God. For the, the happy and the, the faith-filled among us to be fed and energized and emboldened, and for the discouraged and the weary to be comforted and renewed and carried close to your heart. We need you, Lord, for this, this incredibly complex topic in this beautiful chapter. Would you speak, Lord? Your servants are listening. Amen. All right, so the first thing here is our deep longing. We see in verse 20, it says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And then verse 22, And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And so the passage comes out with this strong image of groaning, and it says that creation itself is groaning. And what it's referring to is the fall of man, the, 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 the beginning of, of sin and the curse that came into our world, which we see in Genesis chapter 3. That through the sin of Adam and Eve, sin and death and brokenness, this curse came into our world like a flood. And so now our entire environment, our atmosphere is one of curse. It's sin and brokenness and death. And even creation itself feels it. So this is why we have hurricanes and tornadoes. This is why relationships are so difficult. Why there's conflict. This is why there's wars and oppression and injustice in the world. This is why there's sickness and death in our world. It's all the secondhand effects of sin and the curse from Genesis 3. Creation itself is groaning under this curse. And not only that, verse 23 says this, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And so do you see that? It says that creation is, is groaning under the weight and the brokenness that sin has created. And we, even as God's children, having the Holy Spirit within us, we are also groaning. Like, do you feel that, that groaning, that, that inward longing for things to be made right, for the circumstances to improve? Paul describes it as groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And the way my wife put it, she of, of three childbirths, she said it's, it's that feeling that's increasing the whole time of, of, I can't do this. It's too hard. I'm going to die right up until the moment of relief and joy and new life, happiness and peace and rest. I mean, absolute agony, increasing our groaning, getting louder and louder. And then as the passage says, finally, there's a redemption. There's a renewal. Paul says in verse 18, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. So these are not easy things, but aren't you glad that the Bible does not leave us to ourselves when it comes to pain and suffering? In fact, suffering is all over 
the Bible. By my count, there are five Old Testament books, Exodus, Job, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and the Psalms that have suffering as their primary theme. And then two in the New Testament, Hebrews and 1 Peter. All 66 books of the Bible refer to and address suffering on some level. Tim Keller's written that the Bible, therefore, is about suffering as much as it's about anything else. Now, unfortunately, our, our Western church and Christianity tries to minimize this suffering, tries to, to speak around it or put uh, sort of a gloss over it or encourage us to look to some kind of silver lining, and then it makes promises that we, we cannot keep. And so it's like, no wonder people are deconstructing. It's like life is not supposed to be that easy. You grow up and realize how brutally difficult this world is. It's like, yeah, you're going to be disoriented. Jesus said this in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so this is the reason for our deep inward groaning. The creation has been subjected to this curse that we ourselves are still living in a world that is cursed by sin and death. And we spend our days on this earth groaning inwardly. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. The second thing, how does God respond to our groaning? Well, first it calls us to who we are. Verse 14, it says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And this is one of the most beautiful, most powerful paragraphs in, in all of the scriptures about who we are and our, our identity. If you are in Christ, your core identity, deeper than anything else, is that you are a child of God. That your sins have been forgiven, that you are welcomed into the family, that you are a child of the living God. And not only that, verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so heirs in that generation, that was the, the firstborn sons. When it says adoption to sonship, it's referring to you becoming the firstborn son in the family of God. And so in that generation, the firstborn son received the entire inheritance, which I'm all for as a firstborn son. But in that day, that was the norm, 100%. And so this makes sense that the father eternally existing with the Son, would give all things and put all things under His beloved Son. And yet, when we become Christians, we are joined to Christ, so we become co-heirs with Christ. That means everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us. You are a firstborn Son with all of the blessings and benefits of the living God. And that is your core identity. But then the second half of verse 17 says this, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. If indeed we share in his sufferings. Like not the most popular verse. All right, you don't see it on like the mugs and the welcome mats at Hoblob. Does not make the cut. There's no welcome mat that says, welcome to glory as long as you participate in the sufferings of Jesus. All right, it's too many words anyways. So what's, what, what's the purpose? What's the point of these trials? 
of our suffering, of, of existing in a world with this much hardship? Why doesn't God simply put an, an end to it? Well, the way that Packer puts it in that chapter is that a good father doesn't let his children go their own way. And he also doesn't shield them and protect them from all the hard things of this world. I don't know if you're, you're keeping an eye on parenting these days. One of the kind of parenting trends right now is to do everything for your children. All right? Their shoe's untied, you run and you tie their shoe. It's like, how are they going to learn to tie their shoes if you're tying them every single time? You're doing all the work as the parent, and then anytime there's any kind of potential for harm, it's like, don't climb the tree, you could fall out of that tree. There's, there's this protectiveness, which of course comes in a way out of our great love for the child, but if you're constantly protecting the child, then they grow up and they enter a world of hardship and they are unprepared for it. In the same way, God knows that it's only through some exposure to suffering that we grow up, that we mature, that we become whole human beings in this world. Packer puts it like this. How does God in grace accomplish his purpose of maturing us? It's not by shielding us from assault by the world, the flesh, and the devil, nor by protecting us from burdensome and frustrating circumstances but rather by exposing us to all these things so as to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy. And then he drives us to cling to him more closely. And so suffering will be a part of life no matter what. But if you are in Christ, it has an incredible purpose. But not only that, you don't have to face it alone. So it has purpose, and you don't have to do it alone. These are the benefits of being in Christ. Everybody suffers, but we suffer in a different way. Now, I love this. Verse 26 says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with us through wordless groans. And He who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people. So did you catch that? There's, there's three groanings going on here. There's the groaning of creation. There's our groaning. And then how does God respond to our groaning? The Spirit of God groans within us as well. Like, can you actually imagine that and picture that? I think of it as like the, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you as a Christian loves you so much and, and is, you know, he's taken up residence within you. He sees everything that's going on. He experiences it with you. And so when you groan in your suffering, he groans too. He feels it too. So that means you are not alone in your groaning. You are never alone. Even more than that, later in Romans 8, it says that Jesus also intercedes for you. So you have both the Holy Spirit of God interceding for you. That means taking your prayers to the Father. And you have the Son of God, beloved by the Father, taking your prayers to the Father as well. Both the Son and the Spirit. When you barely can get a little bit of a prayer out, that's enough because the Son and the Spirit are going to take it directly to the throne of God. So in our, our series, our focus has been on, on direct supernatural healing. That's what we've been talking about. That's what we've been encouraging us to pray for. But as we've seen, sometimes God heals in a different way. 
Sometimes he doesn't heal that which we want healed, what's right on the surface, but he heals something deep beneath it. He doesn't make our circumstances easier, but he goes to work on us on a deeper level. So often we say, God, I am so mad about this thing. And he says, okay, I'll heal it. And we're like, the thing? He's like, no, the mad. The mad is what I'm going to heal. We're like, I'm so angry about these circumstances. He's like, I'll heal it. But not the circumstances, the anger. He looks at us and he sees us praying for relief. And and he's delighted that we come to him. And he often does heal us. He heals the the presenting problem. He, He heals that which is on the surface that we are desperately crying out for. And then other times in his wisdom, he says, there's actually something beneath that. There's maybe an anger beneath that, and that's what I want to heal. But even he's, he's even still smarter. And then he says, that anger, I know there's even something beneath that. There's a hurt that's driven you to anger, and I'm going to heal that. And so while we're, while we're busy praying for what's on the surface, and we should be praying for that, God is is working on a level that is so deep because of his love for us, because he loves us more than anything. As Keller says, and I shared this a few weeks ago, God answers every prayer we would have asked if we knew everything that he knows. And so there's really no such thing as unanswered prayer. It's just that sometimes he answers our prayers according to his patience and wisdom and love. There's always a thing beneath a thing, right? There's always a level on which God wants to work, and it's, it's not always where we want him to go. He's like, I'm, I'm interested in that anger. We're like, I was hoping to hang on to that. But can we let him into that level? Can we let him down to the deepest hurts that we have? God who loves us can, can operate at that level, even when we don't see what's down there. He sees it, and he's like, I know this is not what you're asking for right now. But trust me, like I get that you're upset, but like creator of the universe here, holding all things together, infinitely wise and eternal, like let me cook, let me, let me do this. Trust me in this. Let me cook wasn't in the notes, but I kind of like it. <laughs> and God is with us. I mean, how, he cannot be more with us. He is within us, groaning as we groan, doing something so deep when we are hurting. This is how God responds to our pain and suffering. Third thing, what sustains us in our groaning? So verse 23 again, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit And so just pause right there. First fruits, that means that the tiny little bit, that means that the whole harvest is coming. What we experience now is just the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all for who hopes for what they already have. But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. So what sustains us in this 
and this groaning and, and this participation in Jesus' sufferings, it's hope. Hope is what, what sustains us. Hope is the, the forward-looking element of faith. It's, it's the part of faith. It's trusting that God has good things for us in our future. It's our trust in the Lord for a final redemption. And so our central hope, it's, it's not for relief in this world, according to this passage. Our central hope is the, the redemption of our bodies, which comes at the new creation when Christ comes back and, and wipes away every last ounce of, of sin and, and pain and death and everything. That is our central hope, the redemption of all things. And we wait for it eagerly and patiently. What's interesting, though, is that we see in verse 15 that we have already received adoption to sonship. It literally uses that phrase in the past tense. But then in verse 23, it says we're eagerly awaiting our adoption to sonship. Same exact phrase. And so what he's saying is that there is both a, a now and a not yet element to our salvation. There's a now element where you have been saved, your sins are forgiven, you are a child of God, definitively it cannot be taken from you. And there's a, a not yet element of your salvation, that you are still in this broken world with a broken heart, with the capacity to sin, with the reality of death around you. Hope is, is how we live between the, the now and the not yet. Like in our human nature, we, we struggle to hold two things at once. It doesn't feel right that two things could seem opposite and be true at the same time. But almost always, spiritual maturity requires us to hold two things at once. The now and the not yet. We have been adopted and one day, by God's grace, we will be fully adopted. This is hope in things not yet seen hoping for complete joy, peace, strength, and life with God. And so what's the, what's the practical expression of hope? How do, we, how do we practice hope as the people of God? You might be surprised by this, but the answer is prayer. It's prayer. My, my guy, E.M. Uh, e. Bounds, 19th century, Missouri-based pastor, he wrote seven volumes on prayer. He writes this, the whole force of the Bible is to increase our faith in the doctrine that prayer affects God, secures favor from God, which can be secured in no other way and which will not be bestowed by God if we do not pray. The whole Bible illustrates the great truth that God hears and answers prayer. He urges us by every consideration. He points us to his own son turned over to us for our good as his pledge that prayer will be answered. This whole sermon series is designed to build your, your faith in prayer, to, to encourage you and equip you to boldly pray for healing in this lifetime. Not just praying for perspective, but the bold, earnest, like on your face, praying with others, expectant kind of prayer. That's what we long to see because that's what we see in the New Testament. But what happens when you do that and you pray and you pray and you pray and the, and the answer doesn't come, the relief doesn't come, the suffering maybe even increases? How do we pray through the groaning? 
I'll give you a, a personal example. Last year, right uh, before we started our Life in the Spirit series, it was about three or four months long. It had this, this incredible kind of renewing effect on the church. People came to the church. People were experiencing new life. It was this wonderful season in the church. And in the midst of it, I was like incredibly sick almost the whole time. I got this sort of viral infection that started in my sinuses and then ended up getting into my lungs, which as a cyclist, it's like not the lungs. But for 12 weeks, I could like barely get out of bed. And I was preaching from a stool, trying to get in here, the shortest sermons ever. It was incredibly difficult. And so I'm, I'm studying the scriptures and the role of the spirit in healing and I'm, and I'm praying and I'm encouraging all of you to pray for healing and I'm doing all this stuff in my own life, calling the elders and they're praying for me and still week after week, nothing is helping. There's no relief coming. Finally, just over a long, long period of time, it began to get better. The same thing happened earlier this winter. Again, season of renewal. Amazing things going on all over the church, and I get sick again. And then this, this really, really heavy depression sank in, early part of the winter. Some of the, some of the worst depression I've ever experienced, it, and I've dealt with it for 20-some years. And so I'm just thinking, why, Lord? Why, why do I have to go through this? And honestly, it felt like the entire church was just thriving and doing so well, and I was experiencing nothing but darkness and inner pain doing everything I can, everything I'm telling people to do, praying as hard as I can for healing. And then at the end of it, I was just reminded of the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He spent these three deep periods of life praying for healing, for this unknown thorn in his flesh. And finally, God says, my power is made perfect in weakness and my grace is sufficient for you. I didn't get the whole vision of the third heaven and all that. I just got the words just on the page. But isn't it true that his sufficient grace is a greater gift than almost anything else? Probably even than whatever it was that we were praying for him to do. His sufficient grace is often what we need. It's the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing. But my point is you, you have to go through the process. If you're looking at this and, and maybe you're confused and you're saying, well, you're saying pray really, really boldly for healing and God will bring healing and there's a good chance he won't bring healing. But you have to go through the process. You have to begin with trusting the words of Jesus and pouring out your heart to God, asking for healing, asking for what's on your heart, bringing people around you to lay hands on you and pray for your healing. And only after you've done all of this and exhausted all of your energy around prayer can you collapse back into the Father and know that His grace is sufficient for you. That's the pattern of the Scriptures. You can't go around that. You can't just say, well, I'm sick and I'm pretty sure God's not going to heal me. I'm not the kind of person that God heals, so I'm just not going to ask for it. I'm just going to, I mean, it's 2 Corinthians 12. I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to pray for perspective. I'm just going to take the sufficient grace. That'll be fine. I don't, I don't think you get it in the same way. You, you literally have to trust the process. The scriptures command us to pray for healing. To seek God in this way. And then only after that to be content if he doesn't bring the healing. 
I mean, I, I know it's hard. I know it's, it's not the most like immediately uplifting kind of message. It's not the like Easter Sunday, like whatever kind of message. And somebody might say, well, wh- why is it this way? Why does God make it so darn hard? Could it just be easy all the way through? Like, answer me that, pastor. Explain it perfectly so I understand it. I'm like, man, I just work here. (laughs) But I can tell you this. God does not do, God does not ask you to do anything that he doesn't do himself. God does not ask you to suffer in a way that he's not willing to suffer himself. You know, Jesus also groaned with what we would call unanswered prayer. This is a gospel turn. He saw it coming. Jesus, on the night before his death, he's in the garden alone on his face. And he's experiencing a level of agony and desperation that no human being has faced before or since. He is so deeply praying and seeking relief that that blood is coming out of his sweat glands. And even then, knowing everything that he knows, he prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. He still prays for for relief. He still prays for some other way than his suffering. He follows the same process, but then he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. In the moment of greatest suffering, Jesus surrendered to the will of his father. And the next morning, he was hung up on the cross and he gave up his life. And when he did, his his great work was finished and he was placed in the grave. But his work wasn't exactly finished, right? Because he rose on the third day. And what was really defeated, what was really put in the grave was death itself. There's this old book by one of the Puritan authors. It's called The Death of Death and the Death of Jesus. The death of death and the death of Jesus. I love that. Jesus may have died on the cross, but when he rose, it was death that ultimately died. All of its power, all of its its, its hideous effects were stripped from it. And just like the amazing testimony we just heard, death does not have the final word. It still stings. It still causes unbelievable grief because we love and that's part of life. But now death has become a passageway into true healing. Like complete, all comprehensive, forever and final healing and rest. And so why is this life so hard? Why are some prayers answered and others not? Why do we have to wait so long? All I know is that we have a God who knows our pain intimately. He's groaning with you even right now. And I can tell you what the last page of the Jesus Storybook Bible says. When the Apostle John saw a vision of the new creation, he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for having been so sad. And he knew that the ending of the story was going to be so great It would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem just like a shadow that's chased away by the morning sun. 
which is just another way of saying, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you as your children, adopted into this royal family, made heirs with Christ. Not because we cleaned our lives up or got our act together, but because we humbly surrendered to you. And your son's death was applied to us and our penalty was wiped away. Father, it's, it feels too good to be true. But you call us sons and daughters and heirs with Christ. Lord, you know how we struggle in this life. How the, how the pains of this world drive so deep in our souls. How we cry out in agony like all of the scriptures do for relief. We cry, how long, O oh Lord? And yet there you are. Grieving with us. Groaning with us, even within us. Interceding on our behalf, Lord. You even went to the cross for this. And so when you say you're making all things new, Lord, we, we believe you and help our unbelief. Help us to trust, help us to hope, help us to pray with, with incredible boldness for healing in this place. And if that healing doesn't come, help us to trust you and receive the, the healing that sufficient grace can be. Lord, here and now we invite you to do the deeper work. Do what only you can do. Do that deep inner work that we may not even want to face right now. Because you are making us new as well even now, Lord. We love you. You are, you are too good to us. Would you shower us with more and more of your love and power even now, Lord? Let anybody who is, who is deeply discouraged or depressed right now receive more of your spirit, groaning with them and comforting them in their weakness. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.